folks, I'm Tilden Reamer-Leach, and you're listening to Forces That Move Us, Lost Homes and Solutions Amidst the Chaos. I needed to demand my rights for accusing me illegally. It's not fair. They accused me unfairly and they arrested me on unfounded charges. They didn't present any documentation for my arrest. They put me in the police car without a warrant and brought me to jail. They drove me around until they finally fabricated a warrant. Since I've never been in any legal trouble, I had no idea how I should proceed or what they were accusing me of. This episode is about arrivals, departures, and those unable to either arrive or depart. He estado defendiendo la naturaleza y ha sido metido en algunas organizaciones y proyectos en contra la minería. Entonces eso estaba en ellos bien claros. I've always been a defendant of nature. I've been involved in several organizations and projects against mining. So they knew very well that they couldn't convince me or bribe me. The people were behind me and supported me. I lost my liberty and was arrested so they could find new community leaders who would support the mining to instill fear in the people so they wouldn't oppose the mining project. Okay, so I knew nothing of Javier's story and the resistance struggle his rural community of Hunin has led against open pit copper mining for the past 25 years. I really had no sense of what I was getting myself into. I was the blissfully ignorant traveler, soaking in every sight, smell, and sideways glance from the other passengers on the megabus that was currently careening through (laughs) the winding roads of the jungle that is known as the Ecuadorian Cloud Forest. As I looked out the window, each curve of the road gave me a new, expansive view. Or, if I'm being totally honest, 
a new image in my mind of how I was going to plunge to my death. <laughs> As we once again swerved into oncoming traffic to pass a small truck, I had left Quito and traveled northwestward three hours to meet up with a University of Vermont professor named Peter Shear, who had kindly invited me to accompany a group of students who were coming to learn about the biodiverse hotspot region called the Intag Valley, and to see the threat that mining poses to the region's survival. Pete knew I was interested in collecting people's stories of loss of home due to environmental factors, and while a large-scale mining project didn't sound exactly comparable to losing your home in a natural disaster, I was open to exploring what might come up. my eyes away from the view outside of my window to glance at the man seated next to me. He was dressed differently from the other campesinos or farmers we were picking up along the way. He seemed more formal and wore a dark woolen hat that shaded his eyes. He must have seen me staring at him because he introduced himself and explained that he worked as a lawyer in the region. With the little background reading I had done, I knew that there were two sides, people for the mine and those opposing it. I wondered which side he was on, and decided to err on the side of caution and not disclose too much about myself and what I was hoping to do there. To my surprise, the conversation quickly turned from stiff introductions to a mystical storytelling of local legends. His eyes lit up as he huddled closer to me and told me in a hushed voice the ancestral stories of a loving king and queen who were separated and were stuck frozen in time in the unyielding mountain hillsides. I was into it. <laughs> the air and landscape seemed to hold an energy of ancestral wisdom not yet forgotten. And the low-lying clouds gave me a sense that there was mysteries held deep within the earth. Suddenly, he told me to look out the window. Now! I did, and at that exact moment, we turned on a curve that opened onto a vast valley down below. Do you see it? he asked me in Spanish. I did! Across the valley, built into an enormous forested hillside, was the face of the king. You could see two dark patches of green that looked kind of like eyes, a mountain ridge that looked uncannily like a nose, and a small mountain path near the bottom that vaguely resembled a crooked half-smile. I was enchanted, but the spell quickly broke as the bus careened to a halt dumping me along with 10 American students on the side of the road, who were all frantically checking to make sure they had all of their hiking packs and rain boots. We met Peter Shear and were quickly shuffled into a small eating area to learn what we had all come here for. 
the 25-year resistance struggle against the three different proposed copper mining concessions in the small farming town of Hunin, a few hours west of where we were now. Sometimes people talk about this idea of save the planet. We've got to save the planet. But I think what, when people say that, we're not really talking about saving the planet, we're talking about saving ourselves, saving human beings. The planet's going to be fine in, in 10 million years when humans are gone, right? As soon as the humans are gone, the planet's going to recover really, really quickly. What we're really talking about is how can we figure out a way to maintain a, a, you know, life on this planet for what probably is going to be 10 to 12 billion people. Right now we're a little over 70. So this is a case study that really brings into focus that basic question in a lot of ways. A lot of people believe, and a lot of the industry propaganda states that the world's biggest undeveloped copper uh, deposits that haven't been you know, exploited yet are in Ecuador. As you've learned, what we have between 3,000 and 1,000 meters on both sides of the Andes are some of the world's last remaining primordial primary uh, uh, cloud forest and choco you know, ecosystems, right? So we have this case study that sort of highlights everything that's going on in, in the world in this constant conflict between humans' need for unrenewable resources, the economy's, global economy's needs for you know, non-renewable resources, and the irony that by getting these resources, we're putting our own survival in, in jeopardy as a species. clearly wasn't trying to sugarcoat anything. I noticed that when he talked, he was passionate, but also clearly a little worn out. I wondered how many groups of people he had told this story to over the years. Another person we soon met was Carlos Zorilla, a local resident and anti-mining activist who has been at the front of the resistance fight over the years. Mining uh, became an imperative for the government, the government of Korea. Basically, the way they looked at it, the only way they looked at it was a source of income for the government to keep running. They're running out of petroleum. They, they were desperate to look for other sources of rents, and they turned to mining. So when it becomes an, an imperative for a country like Ecuador, where there is no independence of power, all of the institutions of the state are shifted to make that activity happen. So this is what happened in Ecuador, and this is why Codelco is mining in a, protect, in a community forest, and why they went in there aggressively, backed by the police and military. That's the only reason, because it became an imperative, which means mining must happen no matter what. No matter what means uh, violating human rights. Those of us who are in this anti-mining uh, fight, you know, we get like death threats, we get stopped and harassed by the police, we get our email hacked, etc. Really? Death threats? All the way out here? In these incredibly remote farming villages? How could this be so important to the government that it would elicit such archaic forms of fear tactics? 
I wanted to know more about what an open pit copper mine would actually look like, and what we're talking about here in terms of scale. Talking about the kind of mining they want to do here, we're talking about huge, large-scale open pit copper mines, okay? Up to two miles uh, in width, over a mile deep, okay? When we're talking about that kind of mine, we're only talking about the removal of thousands of hectares of forest from the surface. We're also talking about a gigantic hole in the ground, but also we're talking about creating a mountain of all that fill that has to be taken out of that hole, right? Because it's not just making the hole, you got to do something with all that material you're taking out. Copper is not uh, found in the ground in like a giant nugget, like in a Bugs Bunny cartoon where it's just like, hey, a nugget of copper, yeah. It's, it's mixed, it's an it's a ore that's mixed in with all kinds of other uh, minerals and substrates. So the way that copper is commercially extracted is first you got to get all that material out of the ground, you put it in a giant pile, it can be a mountain thousands of feet high, right? And then you have to use sulfuric acid to burn off other compounds, so just the copper's there. So you're creating a, to get, extract the copper from all these other substrates, you're creating this, you know, this, this huge source of uh, toxic waste. Also underground, there's another problem. There's all kinds of dangerous heavy metals that as long as they're left thousands of feet underground, they don't do anything. But as soon as they're on the surface exposed to oxy oxygenation and, and to, the, to the rain, they create another point source of, of really toxic pollution. So we're talking about lead, cadmium, arsenic, um, and, and heavy metals are super toxic and you know, you know, da dangerous to, you know, to living organisms, human, livestock, and everything else. The government says, no, no, we're going to do responsible, we're going to do responsible, sustainable mining now. You know, what those, what those hippie environmentalists are talking about is old school mining. We're not going to do that anymore. We're going to make these little holes and you won't even be able to, be able to tell that we're even there, which is a complete lie, right? There's no way to do this kind of uh, copper mining without doing it in a giant open pit style. So we're creating a, a, a huge uh, point source of toxic, toxic waste with no real plan of how to dispose of it safely. There's also social political factors that go into creating these nightmare uh, scenarios. Junín has, Ecuador has them all, practically all. And it, it means lax mining laws, and then corruption. Even if you have laws, they're not applied on the ground. Uh, and Ecuador happens to be one of the most corrupt countries in the world, according to the Transparency International. There's also the fact that Ecuador, as many other countries in the developing world, and this is something most people don't realize, they sign these bilateral investment protection agreement, which means Ecuador guarantees the investment of mining companies, in this case, when they come here. They guarantee that the investment will be respected and protected. So in many cases, uh, countries like Ecuador are afraid to apply laws to protect the citizens and the environment because it could violate one of these bilateral protection agreements. If a mine would destroy one of the most biodiverse areas in the world, it made me wonder, what were the positives to it? I thought about the man I met on the bus and how, regardless of which side he was working for, he must be raking in the dough, being a lawyer, you know? And what about all the other jobs? 
that could be created by building a mine, let alone improvements in infrastructure and revenue for the development of the country. What the argument of the government is, is you know, those people uh, want to see Intag stay poor. They want people to stay poor. They want people to not have economic op opportunities. Um, but the counter-argument is, is a pretty irrefutable one. We just say, look, can you give us an example of any mining project of this scale at any point, any place in the world, at any point in history, where after the project has been implemented, people are better off economically or in terms of public health? And the answer is no, it's never happened. It doesn't exist. And there's no reason it's going to be any different here. So, what does development really mean? Who is being developed? And is it a good thing? And for who exactly? Most people e equate wealth with money. As I have learned when people come visit, when I ask that, what does wealth mean to you? Immediately it means money. But we forget that there's other kinds of wealth. So if, if you have a policy focused on just increasing economic wealth and destroying your environmental wealth, your cultural wealth, your social wealth, spiritual wealth, eventually when, when the base of that wealth, economic wealth, runs out, you have all these other uh, wealth in your culture and your society uh, weakened or degraded. So you don't have real wealth. You only have this economic wealth. I began to realize that by creating a narrative where expanding extractive industries in Ecuador is viewed as undeniably necessary for development. The government was denying the opportunity for a broader debate as to why and under what conditions mining might be desirable, as well as what alternatives other than mining might be a viable option. This was a lot to process all at once, and thankfully, just then, Pete let us go outside and have a break before we went on to our next activity. I realized I hadn't taken in any of my surroundings. We were staying at a camping ground located in that exact valley that I had peered down at while we were entering the region of Intag on the bus. The mountain with the king's face soared up above me to my left. I couldn't make out the outline of the face from down here, but I thought it had to be that mountain. I sort of meandered about with all of this new information packed into my head and followed the sounds of a rushing river nearby. Without really thinking, I ended up on the shores of a rocky embankment with a gushing river that looked like it had a pretty strong current. I remembered Peter mentioning that all of the local rivers had already been contaminated from the exploratory phase of the mine. It seemed impossible, or maybe not impossible, but just kind of ridiculous, being so close to a river that seemed so alive. I sat for a while on a rock, trying to reconnect with the sense of wonder and mystery I had felt when I first arrived. <sighs> yes, it was still there, but now it had an overlay of sadness. 
I needed to feel grounded before we went to our next activity. We were headed to the house of Marcia, a woman who grew up in Hunin and had been part of the resistance since the mine first opened when she was a little girl. I was strangely excited to hear her story. I guess I wanted to feel a sense of justice in the world. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Gracias, Marcia. So, Mar Marcia is going to talk to us now. Marcia, born and bred, right here. Hardcore anti-mining activist. Really respect her. Marcia, with English translations from Peter, explained that the mining explorations in Intag started in the early 1980s. At the time, the Ecuadorian government was worried about running out of its oil supply and saw mining as a profitable alternative. Since the government didn't have any experience in the mining industry, they created contracts with large-scale international mining companies to come in and start new projects. The region of Intag has always been geographically isolated. It's extremely difficult to access. Similarly to many other rural areas in Ecuador, the state has historically had a weak presence in the valley. This means that even things like sewer systems have not yet been created in some towns. Under these conditions, the campesinos had to rely on their own efforts and relationships between neighbors, which helped them develop strong ties to the land and their communities. In 1991, the Japanese company Bishi Metals conducted an environmental impact study in the community of Hunin to see if there was enough copper to open up a full-fledged mine. Al inicio, toda la gente de las comunidades estaban de acuerdo con la minería. So, this is important, right? Initially, everyone around here, all the communities, were totally supporting uh, the, the idea of mining. Pero era por el desconocimiento que teníamos. Primero, de, de nuestro... But the reason everyone supported it initially is because we were ignorant of, one, our uh, human and civil rights, and two, the potential and probable environmental impacts that would be associated with a mining project of this scale. Con el pasar del tiempo nos fuimos dando cuenta de los impactos que ya se podía notar en ese entonces. Okay, so we, as time went on, we started to uh, we started to educate ourselves and, and understand the probable environmental impacts that would be coming down the road with, with a mine of this size. One of the biggest impacts BC Metals disclosed in their environmental impact study was the predicted displacement and relocation of around 100 families from four different communities. The study also mentioned the creation of a mining town of 5,000 inhabitants, deforestation, desertification, contamination of water sources, and significant loss of natural habitat. To counter this, the local priest Giovanni Paz and Carlos Zorilla, the man who we met earlier with Peter, established a local environmental organization called Defensa y Conservación Ecológica de Intag, or DECOIN. Together, they began to organize the communities close to the mining site. Over a period of six years, the resistance to the mine grew stronger. 
With the help of the community organizing efforts of Decoin, people all across Intag were banding together. But the government still wouldn't intervene to stop the Japanese company. They wouldn't even listen to what the campesinos had to say. They needed to do something that would get the whole country's attention. In the 1997, the community made the decision uh, collectively to take over the mining camp, Pichy Metals mining camp, in the same exact location that the, the camp is today. And, and the community collectively went up there and burned the camp down. What they did was they went up there when, when, when it was disoccupied, they took all the Bishi metal stuff out of the, at that, at that time the camp wasn't still up, it was just kind of like one big wooden structure up there. They took all their stuff out of, out of it, itemized and cataloged every single item down to the spoons and forks, right? Put that aside, and then what was left was just a, a zinc roof and, and you know, uh, wooden boards that the company had cut from their forest anyways, and they burnt, burnt that down. With the idea that this would bring attention to uh, the community's demands and would start a dialogue with, with the government, which up to this point had ignored their concerns. Beachy Metals abandoned the project. Finally, the ignorant campesinos had won for once. Everyone who lived in Hunin and the outer lying towns were very united. And people continued living life the way they always had. Farming the land, playing soccer in the town square, and occasionally bringing small groups of tourists to walk around in the cloud forest, identifying rare species of animals and bathing in crystal blue waterfalls. But again, in 2004, the Ecuadorian government granted the Canadian mine, Ascendant Copper, the rights to start exploration in the town of Hunin. I had to ask Pete, how was this possible? How could an international company have rights to an entire town with a church, store, soccer courts, and community-owned forests that surrounded it? Another important thing to understand is that how can this happen, right? How can the government just say, okay, we're drawing a line on a map, we think there's a bunch of copper or gold here, and this is now a concession we're going to sell to a, a transnational company. It's because in Ecuador's uh, laws, right, there's a law that was developed uh, to, to help, help facilitate the exploitation of oil in the 1960s, which talks about subsurface rights. So what the law says is that all the surface of Ecuador may have individual owners. It might be privately owned land, like my farm. It might be community land, um, like our community forest up on the top of this hill here. It's owned by the collectively by all the people who live in Pucará. It might be a national park. It might be a ecological reserve. But all the subsurface rights in the country belong to the government below one meter. So the surface might have, you know, stipulations and, and, and ownership. Um, but everything one meter and down is the government and have eminent domain to, to exploit that. So one of the legal issues is whose rights supersede who else's rights, right? Do my rights as a, as a landowner supersede the government's right to destroy my farm in order to get the copper that's underneath it? That's a lot of, you know, it's a legal argument. A lot of people say, yeah, 
constitutional, if you look strictly at constitutional law and interpret things literally, my right should supersede the government's right to destroy my farm on the surface to get at the copper below the surface. But since our judicial system doesn't work, that's usually not going to be an argument that we're going we're gonna to win so much. How might it feel to be told you don't have the rights to the land you have lived on for generations? What does it mean to be declared disposable by your government and find yourself existing out of place, in place, as the environment you always knew is transformed around you without your consent? Does this count as a different type of displacement? Maybe displacement from extractive industries? And I wondered, what exactly might be the effect of the fear of displacement on these people's emotional, economic, and spiritual relationship to the environment? The community banded together again. They protested, they talked on local radio stations, they began to take legal steps to demand their rights, and reached out to international groups for support. Por otro lado, la empresa, en cambio, y empezó a ofrecer 5,000 puestos de trabajo, ofrecía hospital. And so the, the company, Ascendant Copper, retaliated with, you know, the typical strategy that mining companies employ all over the world historically, which is offering, you know, these, all this stuff. They're saying, look, we're going to create 5,000 uh, jobs, right? We're going to build hospitals, we're going to build roads, we're going to, you know, uh, improve infrastructure. We're going to have, uh, what do you call it, scholarships for your kids to study in the university. And they even promised to build a university here in Intec. Another strategy that, that, that Ascendant Copper employed was they hired, they gave monthly salaries to about 300 people, all younger men, to basically do nothing but support the company. So these guys were making uh, monthly salaries for basically hang out, drinking beer, and like playing football and volleyball and stuff. And so what that was, for the company was a very small investment compared to the amount of capital they're working with and how much they stand to gain. But what it did was, you know, started getting allies throughout the zona of type to support the to support the company. Some people in the greater province of Intag began to see the advantages of the mine. They could get rich quick, but the majority of the community was savvy enough to see right through it. Ascendant Copper continued their assault on the town, which included a new tactic of trying to buy up land from locals who were living in a buffer zone around the mining concession. But only two people were willing to sell. Meanwhile, the resistance was coming up with their own strategies. For nuestro lado, eh so, in a community assembly, we decided that what we were going to do to keep this company out was to uh, set up a control coming into Hunin, which was essentially you know, a really thick chain that was over the roads. They can control what cars were coming in or out of the community. So, Ascendant Copper then retaliated with 17 lawsuits between 2005 and 2006 against the community government and individuals in the community saying that they were they were getting denied access to their legally acquired uh, uh, mining concession and also accused people of throwing rocks at the cars, assaulting the drivers and, and other things which were eventually all proven false. All the, every single one of the 17 lawsuits was lost um, in 
in uh, county level and provincial level court. I was pretty impressed by the strategy. It seemed crazy to me that they were able to keep a mining company from entering and drilling core samples by just holding a chain of rope across a road. But hey, it worked! When I asked Marcia for more details about how this worked, she explained that in those days, the mining concession area was still very much a jungle of primordial forests. There was only one dirt road to go in and out, and of course, they had to have people guarding the entrance 24-7. The company still wasn't even able to get, get in there, so they finally got desperate and hired, you know, a bunch of uh, pa paramilitaries, who were ex-Ecuador ex and Colombia military people, to come in and try to come in by force and int intimidate. El, el 2 de diciembre, justamente del 2006, eh, alguien nos llamó a avisar que estaban entrando para acá y que supuestamente pensaban que eran militares. So, in December of 2006, um, one, one morning, someone called, called up here to the community. At that time, there's no internet or, or, or cell phones or anything. And uh, said, look, you know, there's a bunch of, looks like military people coming up, up the road. And so, about 20 people ran down to the, to the control, where they had the, the chain, to, you know, confront them. Jamás había ocurrido algo similar antes que nos vengan y nos ataquen con armas. Entonces eh, yo me acerqué hacia ellos cuando se bajaron y que quién era el jefe y qué es lo que querían. Pero ellos no respondieron nada, sino que procedieron a sacar su gas, a rociarnos gas en la cara y al mismo instante a sacar sus armas y empezar a dispararnos a nosotros. Marcia says that, you know, so, she, you know, I started asking uh, the drivers, who are you guys, who do you represent, why, why are you here? Because they had heard that militaries were coming, coming in, but then when they arrived, they could see there's no, like, mark, official markings on their uniforms or vehicles and stuff, so they were like, you know, who are you representing, why are you here, who are you? But instead of answer, they just immediately started tear gassing people and then pulled out their arms and started, and started firing. Marcia was... Right, right there at the front. With all the bullets flying in the air, they were lucky that only one community member got shot in the leg. And they just happened to have a few international volunteers filming the critical seconds of the confrontation. They finally had physical evidence! That was enough proof to show the rest of the country what mining companies were really like. Pero al, al siguiente día nos informaron que otro grupo de alrededor de 100 personas estaban subiendo por la otra parte, por la otra cordillera. The very next day we got word from friends that another group of paramilitaries, at the time they said it was about 100 people, tried to come into the uh, concessionary area but from the other side of the mountains over here. Okay? And that they were carrying a lot of stuff apparently to try to, you know, look, look like they're going to carry a lot of stuff to set up a camp. When that news, you know, got, got out, we assembled about 150 people to go up into the forest and confront them, right? This is my comment. At that time, there was very few people that had telephones out here, right? Or not, not, let alone internet. So the way this was socialized mostly was through, through lo local public radio. 
La lucha nuestra es de corazón, que nuestra lucha no es de un partido político ni nada por el estilo. Nuestra lucha ha sido lo que siempre hemos demostrado, es, es por defender nuestra tierra, nuestra agua y por defender esa paz social que tenemos. People go in the radio saying, hey, this is happening, we need people, we need people to come and help us, we need backup. That time people came from all over the area, to here, right? Not just here from Hunin, but people came from all over the place. Got a little group, about 150 uh, people together, and went up into the forest from this side to try to find and confront this group of paramilitaries. Marcia says that, you know, truthfully, I was very scared. A lot of us were really scared because what it, what had happened the day before was, you know, had been unprecedented and aggression, aggression and, and violence. And, you know, out there in the forest without anyone around, we were worried, you know, they might actually really try to kill us. But we still went up there. Fuimos como en una película en realidad, porque fuimos tan calladitos que nadie podía decir una sola palabra y caminábamos tan suave que para no hacer ningún ruido. So what happened is we got up close, close to them. We sent some, a couple of scouts ahead and we came back to look. We found them. There's a couple hundred meters up, up here over the, the ridge. So what we did was circled around them, being super quiet. Everyone saying we can't. Be super quiet, nobody can you know, say a word. And they were having breakfast. They were sitting sitting there in the forest, you know, eating, totally unsuspecting. Y ellos no puedan reaccionar con sus armas, solamente como tres sacaron sus armas a apuntarnos, pero hasta eso nosotros ya les teníamos a redondear. Got surrounded, and all of a sudden everyone came out of the woods from all sides, you know, people had machetes, people had, you know, like rifles and a few shotguns, not really modern weaponry or anything. We just surrounded them and were able to cap capture them all. We caught them totally uh, unaware. So we were able to bring these... Al fin, so, eran 57, ¿verdad? Sí, 57, porque yeah. muchos en, en el momento que pudieron se jugaron, se volaban por el yeah. bosque y so así. We were able to capture 57 people. Okay, a lot of people, some of them, you know, ran away and escaped and stuff. But 57 were captured and brought down here to Hunin. The main town of Hunin is, is just right down here, okay? And there's a, a small, like, plaza and, and church up there, right? And, and we were able to put them in the church and keep them captive there for three days until all the local and provincial authorities came down here, represent, representatives of the, uh, of the, of the count, county courts and representatives of the military police, and we didn't release them until and we didn't let them go until the sub-secretary, so the second highest ranked person in the mining ministry came here in a helicopter and signed a convenio or an, uh, an accord saying that all of ascendant coppers activity in Ecuador would, is, is hereby cancelled. I don't know about you guys, but when I got to this point in the story, I was cheering in my head. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. They had done the impossible. This was 2007, and the new Korea government administration had just taken office. 
The following year, in 2018, Korea government even went so far as to write a mandate expelling all proposed mines from the country. That included Hunin. So then, everyone was like, woohoo, you know? And we had a few more years of feeling todo tranquilo, and no, there was nobody, nobody owned the concession. There was this new mining reforms, looked like the government wasn't pursuing industrial mining as a major economic strategy anymore. Until 2012, when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the government announced that hey, guess what, we're reactivating the, the Hunin uh, mining concession, but now the owner isn't a transnational company, but a newly formed Ecuadorian national mining company called ENAMI, which in, in Spanish, that's the acronym for, for the company, means the Ecuador National Mining Company, right? ENAMI. Wait, wait, hold up. So now the Korea government who literally just said they weren't going to allow any mining projects in the country, turns around, forms its own national state-owned mining company, and is now going to collaborate with giant international mining companies to get this mine in Hunin pushed through? Oh man, how is this possible? <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting topic. How do you organize against mining when the government is in cahoots with the transnational mining company? It's very difficult, very, very difficult. With the Canadians and the Japanese, it was easier because it was just one transnational. Now it's a transnational and the whole government. So it's, it's very dangerous, very difficult. So. There's what the, what the law and constitution say on paper, and then there's, you know, reality. Malos tirapiedras de siempre, que se creen por encima del bien y del mal, que usan la violencia, bloquean caminos, etc. Hicieron generar hechos de violencia. Enseguida, impidieron la entrada de los técnicos del ENAMI, la empresa nacional minera, que iban a hacer el estudio de impacto ambiental. Pero entonces la, la empresa al ver esa unidad, esa resistencia y que ni siquiera les dejaban pisar Junín, entonces lo que hizo fue tender una trampa a los comuneros y lograr su objetivo. So the company Enami, seeing this solidarity, they weren't even, they were, once again, they were controlling the access to, to the community and to the concessionary area. You know, they couldn't, the officials of the company couldn't get in here to, 
to uh, set things up, do their studies. So seeing this resistance and solidarity, the company decided to set up a trap for the local people. This brings us up to the story of Javier, whose voice we heard at the beginning of this episode. As the president of Hunin, Javier decided it was important for him to go to the capital and start a dialogue with the interior ministry. When they arrived in Quito and sat down to talk, they quickly realized the administration didn't want to talk. They wanted to shut them up. Javier and his fellow community members stormed out of the negotiation room and immediately started the long journey back home by bus. Entonces, cuando estaba volviendo en mitad del camino, se subió la policía al bus y pidió los documentos y le detuvieron a Javier. And so on the way back from the meeting, right? The police stop, the police stop the bus, get on the bus, haul Javier off of the bus without any, you know, warrant or, or charges and, you know, take him away to an undisclosed lo location. Y lo que hicieron so es de It was a trap, right? Decirle que tenía un juicio de alimentos, que no sabían, pero nunca tenían la orden ni, ni la orden de captura, pero le cogieron, vamos a verificar a Quito, a ver si es usted mismo, si no es nosotros le vamos a dejar en su casa, con una serie de mentiras. Right, and so one of the things that the police were saying when they were hauling, hauling him off was that, oh, we, we, uh, we know that you are behind on your child care payments, which also wasn't true. And so that's why we're taking you, you in. And so we'll just take you to Quito down to the station. And if it turns out you aren't behind any childcare payments, we'll, we'll be happy to drive you back to your, your house because it would have, would have just been a big mistake. Y lo que se presume es que mientras le trasladaban de ahí hasta Otavalo, ellos recién fabricaron la orden de captura. And the time it took them to drive him from where they kidnapped him to, to the police station in Otavalo, as it turns out, is when they had a couple hours to fabricate a story that was then fed to the press about how, how and why Javier was uh, arrested. And he spent 10 months in jail before we could get him out. A month later, the government of Korea called a state of emergency in the region and sent 200 military men to Intag to forcibly enter the mine. Sin embargo, un contingente de 21 hombres del grupo mecanizado número 36 Yaguachi arribó a la zona. Desde el día sábado estamos patrullando lo que es el sector. Ya bajamos de Junín, verificamos el sector. These events created an environment of fear among the Junín residents. Many people felt defeated and believed that finally there was no way to confront the state and stop the project. Again, government men and military officers offered bribe money and ridiculous wages for allowing the military men to sleep in residents' home. This time, people took the money. Entonces, la, la gente se, se vendió por dinero y para nosotros muy, muy triste porque La lucha de tantos años, de más de 20 años, se acabó netamente por, por dinero, digamos. So unfortunately, many people sold out, sold out for money. And the, this movement that you know, we constructed for 20 years, um, you know, took a big hit and was really, really weakened almost overnight. 
even though the same people that you know sold out for money knew what the long-term consequences of their decision would be. Thank Marcia for her time, and our group drove back to our campsite. This time on the drive, I didn't want to look out the window and see all the beauty around me that could so easily vanish from underneath us. I had so many more thoughts, like where does displacement start? Does it start when you are forced to leave your home? Or is there some type of displacement that involves not moving at all? Or might it count? if your land gets torn apart, meaning you can't plant your corn that used to sustain your family and are then forced to leave? Is that displacement? It seems clear to me that there has been a significant emotional and physical toll on the lives of these residents with the continuous and seemingly never-ending threat of displacement. But it's a tricky kind of displacement, because it happens very slowly over long periods of time, and it's hard to remember exactly when it began or who was the perpetrator. Regardless of whether this counts as displacement or not, the ideology and justification for these acts have been the same, whether from the Japanese, the Canadians, or the Ecuadorian government. Poverty is used as a pretext for extraction and the destruction of rural communities. Wealth and roads are promised in exchange for compliance and relinquishing of citizens' rights to land and water. We were told to rest up because tomorrow morning, bright and early, we're going to drive to the town of Hunin and enter in the mining concession. While the American students slunk off to go play cards, I had to ask Peter a few more questions about where the mining concession stood now. Peter told me that in April of 2016, Korea decreed 600 new proposed mining sites in all of Ecuador. 31 of those proposed mining sites, or mining concessions, are located in the region of Intag which would cover over 85% of the territory. So before we were all together fighting this one company, now we've got 31 concessions, which basically covers the entire area. So the stakes have changed massively. Now, instead of pooling all of our resources regionally just against this one concession, now we're spread, we're, we're spread thin and we're, you know, we're, we're having to fight against you know, like eight different companies that, that are housed in four different countries. So it's a much more difficult and complicated bureaucratic fight than before. Tomorrow, when we go to the mine, we're going to see the Hunin mine in its exploration phase, which involves taking 90 core samples from different locations in the community of Hunin to test for the amount of copper in different areas. All the local governments in this area are all totally corrupt and bribed by the mining companies now. Okay, so it's a really hard David versus Goliath battle because, you know, here in Intech we're like, hey, we just got a donation for $500, and we're all psyched because, you know, oh, now we can pay our lawyers for, you know, two more months or whatever, or two more weeks. 
but the companies we're up against now are some of the biggest transnational companies in the world. These guys have billions of dollars, right? BHP just this year announced that they've, they've got $112 million in their budget just for so socialization programs in Ecuador. What that means is bribe money. Money to pay, buy off local politicians, money to buy off local police, money to buy off local environmental uh, ministry employees, money to buy off regional, regional governments uh, all the way up to, to the national level uh, you know, court, court system. You know, and so it's a really hard fight because we can't count on Ecuador's institutions to do what they're supposed to do. You know, we can't count on the judiciary system to be objective and enforce the law. We can't count on the environmental ministry to protect the environment. All those people are getting paid off. Finally, we're all part of this too because our consumer decisions and choices, inadvertently or not, are the ones you know are the, are creating the demand for these products. Whether it's a mahogany desk, a new iPhone. I thanked Peter for his time and ran back to my tent. It had just started to rain as it grew darker. They weren't kidding that it rains a lot here in the cloud forest. Hearing the muffled sound of the rain through my tent was comforting, especially after all I had heard today. It was hard to fall asleep with so many questions still unanswered. What is development? Is it having electricity or having a cloud forest? How would you rather be displaced? In an earthquake or very slowly over 25 years? And how do we balance the mine's destruction with our inevitable hunger for copper? And if residents were to be forced to leave, where would they go? Hopefully, I would get some more answers in the morning. Now, I totally believe Peter when he said that he receives death threats. But that made me think back to Javier, the community leader who had been arrested and held in jail for 11 months. Javier was finally liberated, but he never received justice. I don't agree with the fact that without having committed any crime, they condemned me and held me illegally for 11 months. Now I will consult a lawyer and see what I can do to prove my innocence. While I was in jail, I felt I couldn't do anything to support the fight we have led. And I was sad that I was forced to leave my home and family unprotected. Javier appealed the ruling. However, the Mbabura Supreme Court of Justice denied the appeal and sentenced Javier to two more months in jail, as per the original ruling. If you would like more information and photos from the stories on this podcast, please go to 
forcesthatmoveus.com. If you would like to listen to a Spanish version of this podcast, please search Lo Que Nos Mueve on iTunes or by going to our website. In the Spanish podcast, we cover the same themes, but sometimes the content is different. I'll also post a link in the show notes. Thank you to the National Geographic Society for supporting the production of this podcast. And thank you to Alex Alviar for the lovely intro music. You can find the full album by searching Equatorial on Spotify. Other music in this podcast includes Memory Rain by Young Logos, Pecuche and Churay para los Yarina by Alex Alviar, Aeoli by Andrew Langdon, Northern Lights by Chris Hagen, Cavern by Hobotov, Apocalypse by YSBS, California Wind by Bruno E, I Love Destruction When It Serves Love by Algae, Flying Free by Jingle Punks, No Al Matrato by Milton Conde, and The Hunt by Andrew Langdon.